Good morning, Dr. Rene, after this long weekend, 70 years of the queen on the throne. And what I got from it was, wow, as a child, I used to put her on a pedestal and think that she would ultimately save us. And over the last two years, having the crown above these um, corrupted politicians in New Zealand, the crown has not stepped in and saved us. The governor general hasn't done what I think should be her constitutional duty. And I was watching the show thinking, it's a good show. But I will never give my power away to any ruler, to any other human who all of us are capable of being corrupted. Not that I'm saying the queen is, but she's certainly ineffectual from my perspective. So it wasn't this great celebration of an incredible ruler, but it was just a good show. What did you think of the queen's jubilee or whatever it was? Uh, I didn't see much of it, I must say. <clears throat> um, and... I always have a bit of um, ambivalent because I I was born under Queen Wilhelmina in Holland. She was a queen in exile and Churchill <clears throat> named her the strongest man he'd ever met. <laughs> she, she had every day during the war on the BBC, there was Radio Orange, I think, for a, for a half an hour or something to really um, enthuse and empower the people in occupied Holland. People in Holland were not allowed to have a radio. So they were the, the, the Germans, uh, the occupation forces would, would take the, 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 the radios away and you would go in jail and whatever if you had that. But clandestine, of course, they hear that. So the, the incredible importance of empowering even if it is officially not allowed is quite amazing so that was the first queen she abdicated <clears throat> in 1948 and then queen juliana came i was two years old then and then that was my queen that was the queen while i was in holland and when i left in 75 she was still the queen and then later you had queen beatrix in 1980 then I became a New Zealander and I had to um, change queens. I, I was no longer under the queen of the Netherlands, but under the queen of New Zealand or the queen of England. Or because as a, to become a citizen, you have to swear allegiance to this monarch. That's, yes. that's right. So that's a very strange thing. <clears throat> Isn't uh, it? Yeah, and so I think with many people who have taken on the New Zealand nationality from other nationalities are in this similar sort of bind of what what is this? Um, I'm not a rugby player, but I used to play hockey. But let's say if you have Holland playing New Zealand in hockey or whatever, or in rugby or in soccer, who do you actually go for? Um, I don't go for either very strongly, but it's an interesting part because it's the, do I have my identification really with my nationality? Do I have my identification with my, my social status? Do I have my identification with, with my surname? Mm, explain that, explain that. Well, <clears throat> children are fantastic, aren't they? I, I um, remember when 
he probably wouldn't remember that, but my youngest son, when he was about 12, I was driving the car with him and the traffic light was on red. And he I said, always shudder when I hear traffic lights in red. I don't know why. It's <laughs> something about COVID, something about Jacinda. <laughs> anyway, it was a normal traffic light and it was normal a healthy red. Okay. Healthy red. And he said, Dad, what's the essence of life? And what is the essence of life? Wow. And I thought, oh, golly, between red and green is probably maximum of about 45 seconds or a minute or something. <clears throat> and what I blurted out was, I'm not sure, but what I do think it has to do with is to come from my surname, my identification, my, my, uh, people can 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 put me into and recognize me, identify me with, to my surname, uh, to my Christian name, to my first name, the name who I really are and my own identity. So not my identity socially or background, because that is all past. And the the. Um, the first name, my own name, especially if I'm happy with my name, and I am, is really, um, that is an identification with me and is, is future, uh, future oriented. We have, for instance, also a, a family reunion of the de Monchy family is uh, the Huguenot family. Uh, and a relatively small family in Holland, and they get together every few years, and and they um, they do that. And of course, that is my genetic background. That is that's where I come from. I and identify with. But for me, certainly, having immigrated or emigrated away from from that means that that is actually for me no longer my identity at all it is more sort of traditional nostalgia perhaps a bit and that depends because for my 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 eldest brother it was far more important he was far more strong in in, in family ties and it's it's interesting. interesting. It's it's at the key. It's at the core. It's one of the principles at the core of people who are investigating the common law system, because many Kiwis are so disillusioned with Parliament, with the way it's being run, with the corruptions, with the dishonesty towards the people, the lack of service by these public servants, these politicians to us. They're not serving us. They're serving someone else. So people are starting to say, well, what can I, what can I agree to? What do I want to agree to? As a citizen, what kind of system? And at the at the at the core of the common law system is this idea that you drop that sort of corporatized identity of the surname. But that's a much bigger conversation. We've got something up on our Odyssey channel under Free NZ by Bill Turner, and it's called an empowerment series. And he'll explain all of that in that series if people want to follow up. But what's 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 really interesting too is I think. For me, the essence of life is coming from the egoic 
side, the side that worries about how I look, am I fitting in with society, am I doing what they want me to do so I just fit in, you know, I just want to get by to who am I and what does my heart tell me and to be guided more from my heart than my head. So my heart might say, oh, what I'm being told to do doesn't work and this is what's happened in COVID. It doesn't work for me. It doesn't feel properly researched. I don't think they're being honest and open with me. I don't like the way I'm being manipulated. Mm, so I'm going to follow my heart, even though the externals may be that um, there's a lot of pressure to conform. I still will be true to my heart. To me, that's been such a, an enormous journey, this life, Renee, but such a liberating one. And it's kind of a parallel, isn't it? Come from your external name to your inner self, your first name, Renee. Who is Renee? Yeah. It's interesting that you, I go a bit further into what you, what you just said. The, the heart is indeed, it's the most unique sense organ that we have. I mean, it's the most precise sense, sense organ. And in June last year, Elizabeth and I were in Hanmer Springs and Elizabeth's my wife. And the, I felt an urge to make a short video there on listen to your heart because we were told also as doctors what to think what to believe how to act but somehow physiologically it it, it, it didn't feel right and we, we talk about a gut feeling and a gut feeling is not exactly the same as a heart feeling but our physiology via our immune system is so so incredibly finely tuned to who we are and that, that inner self. Um, I was thinking this, this weekend and talked with, by, by the way, have you seen that little video? The, uh, it's interesting, the one that I did last year. Yes, um, I have. And, I, and in fact, we'll put it up as a, as a little excerpt in this interview because it was such a beautiful piece. And I've just heard about a, a leading... Uh, I think she's a cardiologist, but she it was, it was secondhand knowledge, so I, I can't quote absolutely. But this is the purport of the story. She has been jab injured. She knows she's been jab injured. She's still able to work. Uh, now that the June the 1st has passed and her two shots are not enough, the booster is coming up, the, the booster is being pushed by the government. She's in this real dilemma because does she go against her principles? She knows that she shouldn't be advocating to her um clients or patients the booster she knows that it, she's been harmed and then she said to my friend but I also have kids in schools and I need to have the money they're in private schools and all of these pressures I know for me that wouldn't be a a problem I would go right the kids have to come out of school we'll homeschool we'll make do we'll find a way through with the money I will be true to my principles I will not advocate for this and I won't take it in my body but here's this woman right at that cusp of opening up and going, this is wrong, and I'm going to be true to myself, or she takes the other path, the road more traveled, oh, I'll just go along. It's a, it's a really profound story. Does she listen to her heart or her head, Renee? And how many Kiwis must be going through this? And exactly, there are thousands, because I also know at least a num quite a number, actually, of specialists and colleagues of mine in, in, in the hospital, too, who need to get this month their booster who don't want to do that and who who of course every booster you will come to that dilemma 
what am I going to do? It's every time it's a new, it's a new decision of uh, who do I actually uh, pay allegiance to, really to myself or or to um, to the government. As long as it's very clear that if you have a vaccine, you don't get you go don't get the illness, you don't transmit it, and you don't put either yourself or others risks. In other words, if it is really safe and effective, then you can make a point. But more and more, it is clear that it is neither safe nor effective. And if we look at in the hospital, all the COVID cases where they say now that the hospitals are, are overloaded with people. Well, if we have 90% vaccination rate, then that doesn't actually make sense anymore. So every time the people need to make that decision, and I know a number of uh, registrars and, and, and specialists who say, I'm not going to do it. Now that is very brave because I can easily say that at the end of my career, you know, I, I wanted by age 70 to be debt free and I was able to do that mortgage paid and all of uh, no dependent children. But if you have that, then I don't judge that I, I that is a should be a free choice. But if it isn't a free choice because of if you don't do it, then you lose your job and, and or your house or whatever. That is actually bullying. That is actually an, an, an excess power use that, that is totalitarian. It's absolutely totalitarian and it is not what we voted this government in to mandate against us. And I still remind everybody, a mandate is not a law. They haven't passed it into law because in the future, they don't want to be, they want to technically say, I'm not responsible. I'm not actually responsible for this. People who uh, we mandated chose themselves. Of course, that's not the truth, but it's very slick and very PR driven and every, everything about it is cunning and dishonorable and dishonest, but that's how they operate. I'm like you, Renee. I, part of me is, is angry those doctors don't stand up. Um, you're not like this, but I am partly angry they're not standing up and saying, look what I'm seeing in the hospital, I'm going to whistle blow and I'm going to blow the lid off this. If every doctor who is having doubts spoke up like that, this could be over. The country would stand behind them and say, what are our politicians doing? But the doctors are saying silent, even though they, they've seen things they know are wrong. The ambulance drivers are staying silent, even though they run off their feet. I heard someone yesterday who had a friend who broke her back and she had to wait five hours lying on the floor in agony and the ambulance didn't come for five hours. And they said, we are just so busy. They came. They got another urgent call up. They said to a friend of this woman with the back injury, you will have to take her in your car. What kind of a hospital system are we turning into? And all these doctors must know that this has to do with something more than normal circumstances. This is very much an occurrence since these jab rollouts. So why are we not asking these questions? How many in hospital are vaccinated? with supposed long COVID, how many are unvaccinated? 
my understanding is most in hospital with, with what the government is calling long COVID are actually vaccinated. So is long COVID vaccine injury? We have to ask these questions, Renee, don't we? We have to. Absolutely. And that's again this, this word question and quest, isn't it? And that has to do with, with truth and has to do with awareness, has to do with courage, has to do with risk. And the life is risky. And so we need to live with ourselves. But that is indeed, that's the situation. And I don't want to, to, um, to stay by that, to, to, to dwell on that. To dwell on that, because I know that, and I've been through that myself. As you know, I've been mandated out of uh, out of my job at the hospital, and that's fine. Actually, I feel, and that is interesting that I've heard from so many other people. Once you are actually going through that and being able to live your truth, I feel much freer than I actually felt before. And that's what you hear generally. And that's that, that whole idea that in the, the, the darkness that we're in, the difficulty that we're in, that's the same as if people have the, the darkness of an illness or a crisis. It is so important to keep hope because at the end of that is actually you get better, you, you get freer, you come, to a higher level of awareness. And you, you're not stuck with, with a fear of, of what people tell you how to think. You know the interesting thing, Galileo in 1615, you know Galileo, of yes. course, and Galileo, he, he had found, and on purely scientific grounds with his own telescope, that actually the, the, the earth turns around the sun and not the other way around, which the inquisition and, and the, the authorities held at that time, the Ptolemyan worldview, et cetera. And so he said, look, I, I, can, I can prove that. And the inquisition said, no, you have to recount that, that notion that that is so. And, and just, just the authority at that time was the church. And they said, how dare anybody question what the church is saying? And we've got, instead of religion now, we've got scientism, which is how dare you question the science that Ardern talks about. Uh, the science is it's exact. But anyway, that's an aside. Similar parallel. Something, it's something that would be good to talk about, and we can do that. So Galileo then <clears throat> said, it, he recounted, but quietly he said, e pur se muove, meaning, and yet it turns. That was an interesting, but what he then later said, he said, it is not the clergy, it is not the inquisition that I wanted to, um, to convince, but my fellow scientists, at that time, because he said, here, take my telescope. I don't have a telescope here, but take my, take my telescope and just look, you can see it for yourself. And they didn't dare to do that. And he, he told that, or it's in his biography, that 
they didn't do that out of fear for the Inquisition. So in other words, they, they realized that what he said was the truth, but they were fearful of the truth coming out. <clears throat> and what we have got a lot is the, the belief in science rather than science. So science has become deified as a, uh, almost like a church with an altar and, and, and um, altar boys and whatever. Um, rather than the freedom. And so the, the idea of the truth will always come out, the same as we will always go through a crisis. If, we, if we're able to face it, if we're able to, um, yeah, to, to, to look at I am, it's not for nothing that I write this letter I for, this is my path, this is my immune system, interestingly, starting with an I as well. And that stands, but my immune system and my DNA, my whole physiology connects actually my conscience with, with the world. Yes. And so I um, always keep up hope because the truth will come out, the, the crisis will finish, the illness is not going to devastate you. It looks like that. It looks like everything might be bleak, and yet it isn't. There's, because you are in it and you can go through it. That's so beautiful. I, 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 there's a little aphorism, something like, uh, when one door closes, don't stare at it and long for it to open, turn around because you'll see three doors opening behind you if you turn around and move away from that closed door. I've interviewed people who've stared and stared at their, I've lost my job, I've lost my teaching job, I've lost the ambulance driving job that I love, and, and you feel their pain. Then there are others who've gone, well, I've lost that teaching job, but guess what? I'm teaching locally in my community. I'm teaching homeschooling kids and it's more fun and I have more freedom and the kids are more curious and there's less of the systemic corruption that there is in education. We are more exploratory. I love it. So there are, you, you turn around and you walk the other way and you'll find doors opening. I love that image. Yeah, that's true. And of course, the um, before the sun comes up in the morning is actually the coldest time and is the darkest night. So just, just to look through that, just to hold on. Uh, Doug Hammarskjöld, the ex-secretary general of the United Nations wrote this, this he was a poet. He, he died, he was shot down over Congo in the 1960s. And he wrote actually an, um, a poem the, the, the day before he died, and that was called Tired and Lonely. Uh, and that, is, that says you feel, and I can't remember it entirely, but tired and lonely, you feel the meltwater trickling down the rocks and you're holding on with you for dear life, and yet don't give up. This is, this is your time. And yeah, I, I, I see it very much like that. Gosh, Renee, I'm going to look up that, that poem and how incredible to have a poet 
heading the UN compared with the tawdry bought out people that we have now heading the UN who are acolytes of Gates and all of these others. The world has come such a, it's come from a place that had, had real sparks of enlightenment where we had poets heading you know, an organization that was meant to be a visionary organization to these, um, you know, these, these people who, again, getting back to our theme, it's very hard to look up to the people in authority around the world at the moment, even in our own country, to say, oh, we've got trustworthy, good people who are worthy of trust. No, I don't do that. But I wanted to move a little bit into your area, Tauranga, where there's this by-election coming up. And the the choice, the buffet of nominees that you have in Tauranga, what are you feeling when you go to local meetings and think I must participate in this by-election? Who will I vote for? Not that I'm asking who you'll vote for, but what are you feeling about the standard of the candidates you're seeing, Rene? Very interesting. You have normally at an election, you see a number of, of billboards, <clears throat> largely the, the, the official big parties and one or two independents. Here, it's very different apparently the same as it was in Australia. Now there is a lot of independence. And so um, the, you can say, well, uh, a vote for an independent is probably a lost vote is what many people will say, sort of the majority. I don't believe that. I think I, I, I'll tell you who I feel for, that is Sue Gray, but, um, because she asks questions. And I think if you have one, even if it is one member in parliament, that member is not going to change the, the policies in the, in the government. They're not uh, able to do much like that. But what they can do is they can via questions, raise an awareness in people and to increase the transparency. Because I don't know if you know, but that. If, if you or I ask a question via the Official Information Act, we have all a right to do that, then the government or the, the, the ministry would have to answer that, I think, in about uh, less than 20 working days or something. I think, that was the, I think that was the era before we had the Ardern government, Rene. I think they're taking a lot longer for everything, for coroner's reports, autopsies, yeah. OIA yeah. requests, everything the people ask for has been slowed down under this government. Another um, aside. But yeah, but when you, apparently, when you are in, in parliament, when you're an MP, you have, I think, a right to ask one question a week, an oral question, and an unlimited number of written questions. And these questions apparently, need to be answered within three days. So even that is a reason for getting a person into parliament who asks really questions, because so much has not been questioned and has not come into the media. And I think that's, that's really important that that happens. The, and Sue has at least the one thing that we do know from her background, because the others I, I don't really know, is that she asks questions. And if you, if you vote to somebody for labor or for national or for act, that becomes number 
28 on the list or number 27 or whatever. So the influence that that person has on in parliament is nil for the first few years. So the, um, because there, there's a whole party system and people have to not swear allegiance to the queen as I used to do, but more or less promise that they will turn the party line. An independent person hasn't got that. And I always feel that therefore all our institutions that based on a dualistic good, evil, yes, no, black, white system. Like, Red, blue. Yeah, exactly. It's actually from the 19th century and it's surpassed by the development that we as human beings have and where we are now. So that is similar. And now I come to the, the very important conference in Bath in England on better way. Yes, which we promised we'd talk about last time we spoke. Lovely. Yes. Exactly. Because I don't believe that standing by the situation, how it is or how it's developed, is actually all that useful. It's to keep um, on to keep on rehashing that. So this is the conference of the World Council of Health, which was co-formed by our wonderful New Zealand doctor, the head of the NZDSOS. Dr. Tracy Chandler, who's an extraordinary woman, with yeah. Dr. Tess Laurie. Yeah, there is no, there's no head of NZDSOS. Well, the, yes, thank you. No, this is important. It is. Because the, 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 the systems with a head or a pyramidal system of, of lines of command, that is part of that old, old way of doing things. Thank you, Renee. Yeah. And I said to you last time, this, this, this mantra of a healthy social community, a healthy community is found only if in the mirror of each soul in the community, the whole community is mirrored, is, 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 is manifest. And if in the community, the virtue of each separate member is living. That is, that is very different from, I tell you what to think. And that's what uh, the story of Galileo is that, I don't know if that's still recorded or not, but that is, that is similar. Galileo and the scientists were told what to think. And the vast majority did out of fear for the inquisition apart from Galileo, who didn't. And of course, many people, uh, he wasn't burnt on the stake, but many people were for standing up. And that is, yeah. Standing up to the church. This is such a rich conversation. So we need to get back to that idea. Not, not, not standing up for the church. As standing you up to the church. Yes. Standing up to the church for, for telling the truth, which is that same idea of people now saying, I don't believe the science is settled. I don't believe the science is right. You're right, though. Let's move on from rehashing what's going on. People are educating in large numbers now, waking up, researching. But that's the other side of what you're talking about with the World Council of Health, which is 
here is a way forward. Here's a group that could replace the corruptions of the World Health Organization, could offer human beings around the world a much better way to um, jointly take responsibility for our health outcomes. So tell us a bit about this conference that you were part of online and that you were very excited about. Yeah, so it is really um, scientists, doctors who are very prominent, but simply because they, they questioned and that's where they, they, they have been vilified and, and sidelined and um, the, that's an interesting part because we, we talked a bit about a, a bit of a sideline. We talked about Dark Hammarskjöld and you said this was the United Nations when the United Nations still had an integrity of, of really having the, the goodwill of each people at heart. There have been since then the ex, um, the previous director general of the WHO, this was this French gentleman, there was a short interview that I heard a few months ago, who really abhorred what the WHO has become, yes. you know, where it has become from an independent United Nations organization, and it has now, it is 90 or 80 percent um, commercially influenced body because that's where they get the money from similarly and for people who aren't aware of that renee when trump pulled out um the the biggest funder of it became the gates foundation and that's always worried me from the beginning because the gates foundation pushed for this to be declared a pandemic and then the Gates Foundation themselves have benefited enormously from the declaration of a pandemic because they're heavily invested in big pharmaceutical um, vaccinations. So you've got the people who are pushing for this to be put out on the world and, and the ones who are benefiting, the same people. That, that is a story for a good journalist to follow up. And I don't see any journalists in mainstream following that story. Mm. That's true. And of course, also the, uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has actually financed or is in charge now of the, <clears throat> the scientific research of the um, and, and, and publications of the, uh, of the WHO. And that's interesting here, an article by, so you have all these medical journals. And one is the New England Journal of Medicine, a journal born in the year 1812, but captured by Pharma. And the former editor, Marcia Angel, in the book, Drug Companies and Doctors, A Story of Corruption. And I quote that, it is simply no longer possible, this is a fairly recent that he wrote this, as an ex-editor of one of the highest esteemed medical things, journals, it is simply no longer possible to believe much of the clinical research that is published or to rely on the judgment of trusted physicians or authoritative medical guidelines. I take no pleasure in this conclusion, which I reached slowly and reluctantly over my two decades as an editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. And that is, that's- Goodness one. me. 
That is an mm-hmm. indictment, Renee. That's an indictment of the system from the top echelon of, yeah. of people with integrity. And so also the, the um, what is being published and who publishes and why is it not published? And then the whole writing of articles. In the first place, the research is funded usually by, by industry because other institutions simply don't have the money to do that. And so there is a big influence in that. And the, 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 the sponsor, let's say the pharmaceutical industry on a particular drug or something, actually owns the data. And they, they, um, they are able to have their statisticians, et cetera, work in that. And then there are whole lots of articles, and that's more and more also in this same article of this, this ex-editor, that many articles are being ghost-written and have the name of authorities as part of the, of the authors. Um, and then you have the newest thing, and that came very clear, for instance, in the ivermectin study and others, that actually what is in the, in the data, what the data says, say, is not reflected in the summary. So the summary is something very different. And that is, has never happened in, in science before. And scientists and doctors have so much to read. So usually they read the summary. And so the, the, if the summary is no longer really reflecting what the results of your research show, then you have a big problem. And so the whole, whole of that, and this is just one sideline. And so the, the, the question was asked of how to reclaim science. You know, if, if, if science is, if I can, can't, rely on publications and research anymore because it is used for political commercial ends. How can I reclaim science? And this uh, well-known scientist, he said, actually, you can't reclaim science. You simply, what you can do, you can try to rebuild it. Similar as with all the symptoms, all the systems that have become wrong or corrupted or, or over-influenced by, by, by profit parts or commercialism, you need to make a parallel system because you can't, you won't, you, you can spend a lot of time and effort to try to change it uh, and bringing back to, I think if you would get Sue in the, in parliament, she at least questions and will make make clear where wrong things have happened but of course that won't change essentially the thing but just like if people are no longer able to 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 get proper health care then we need to think about a different healthcare system an alternative healthcare system and that's where i said and we, we, we are thinking about that here in Tauranga, and there's a, a group working on that. And what you see in the people that you work with then, 
they are so free and and far more happy and real professionals who who love their work and want to work from that to help their fellow human being and many hospitals and other uh, medical institutions appear to be demoralized so it's yeah. it's a, and that's what i say that if you you become actually free. Yes, you might be blocked from everything. They might, if if the government would or or whoever the police wants to come at me, they they might do all sorts of things. They might whatever. But inwardly, I'm free, and that is the uh, as we talked about with somebody this weekend. Actually, when you come into the stream of being rather than the stream of, of how I should be seen. Because now we get this, this monkey pox and I'm absolutely certain that there will be more and more and more because the one thing that you know about life is that it will, it, it will, it will change and viruses will change all of them. And you can't keep on putting lockdowns and things in order to, to deny the dynamic of our immune system, of the human being in its integrity. You can't, can't keep on doing that. We've always evolved with viruses pushing our immune system to be stronger. It's actually not a bad thing to get a bit sick sometimes because the, the body's own immune system, it's like a workout in the gym. It goes, oh, I have to be stronger now with this incoming attack. So I have to build up my own internal immune system to ward this off. And I remember a GP years ago telling me about um, small children when they were uh, sick, they would often take big de developmental leaps after they'd had some of these childhood illnesses that were non-threatening. Chickenpox, when I was a child, we all had it, it was non-threatening. But afterwards, he said he often saw children start to walk, start to talk, start to be much more integrated in their own bodies because they'd had this chance to be sick, fight it off, little heroes, and then everything seemed to work better. And here we are saying, well, jab them for this and jab them for that. How are we going to keep strengthening our immune systems? Maybe we were given viruses to co-evolve with in order to have these little tests so we could get stronger. And, you know, for those who go, oh, yes, but someone might die. Well, let's look at how many are dying. Look at the back of your newspaper. Today, it'll say sudden death, unexpected death, sad death, young death. And you must ask, are these jabs implicated in this mass of deaths we're getting? Sudden deaths. So do the jabs actually stop the risks? Nothing stops the risks. There is risk in living, isn't there, Renee? That's right. But you've actually now pointed to quite a number of quite deep essential things. <clears throat> in the first place, illness and death are part of life. So we talked about that last time. We don't actually need to to spend a lot of time on that because that is life. So the question is, how can I go through an illness? In a way also, how can I go through death? But that's, that's, that's a whole different matter. Um, <clears throat> in order to, to grow and in order to develop, that's one thing. The viruses and illnesses have been there and they were until probably 15 years ago, they were called childhood illnesses. And now they are 
officially the term I think is vaccine preventable potential lethal illnesses or something like that. Good heavens. So it, it, it's it's something like that that I uh, that I read in the past. Now, I think it'd be more more honest to say uh, revenue gathering means for big pharma illnesses. That would be a more honourable title. <laughs> yeah, could be. So what what happens actually if you have a childhood illnesses and this doctor who you talk about and that's exactly my own experience too, the child going through measles and starting to walk or whatever. The, we have the hereditary body, the body largely for my mother. <clears throat> and so in the first seven years until the change of teeth, so it might be a little bit earlier, when we, we, we transform the whole physical body with the hereditary body to my own, I mold this coat that I've got for my mother to make it my own, or to say differently as I sometimes use in lectures, to the first seven years as uh, to throw mother out physically. And so to, to build my own identity in my physical body. Now that always goes with a fever. And fever is the element of fire, the element of of, of identity, of uh, enthusiasm in, in, uh, in the emotional sense, of I being really myself. Now that means that it is a struggle. Just like you, you said, life, life is a struggle. Life is a risk. We know that. We don't actually, in the, the book, The Road Less Traveled, the very first sentence is, life is risky. We know that in all uh, cultures so don't spend any time on that it is that how do we deal with that so the child goes through that and gets ill gets sick gets a fever a fever being an enhancement of the immune system that is building itself to overcome this particular uh, virus or, or bacterium not because that virus or bacterium is so bad but in order to overcome that and then um, you, 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 you get better. And what is happening then? Then you get a rash, the child. So the more an illness comes out actually in a rash, the externalizing, and the, the, the word for the rash in Dutch is Uitslag, in German it's Ausschlag, that what is thrown out. So once you, you externalize that and help the child through a fever, don't be essentially afraid for an increased temperature. There's a lot that you can do with lemon compresses over the calves, with, <clears throat> with, with, with uh, naturopathic things like chamomile tea, whatever sort of thing. All of these things help to bring that fever down to manageable levels. You don't need immediately to go to paracetamol or aspirin. And then you have this, this rash comes out and the child is better, makes an incremental change because our development is not linear. Our, our development is stepwise. So if I don't let it come out, if I suppress the symptoms and with 
with paracetamol, with, with, with aspirin, etc., I have far more chance to internalize it and to get, let's say, a chickenpox pneumonia or a measles pneumonia or even a meningitis. Um, so childhood illnesses are, are certainly illnesses that need a lot of care and you need to do it well. You need but, to stay home, keep the child at home, rest in bed, do all of those things, not send them off, yes. It's so that is listening, it's listening to your body, really, when you have an illness, and, and to deal with that in, an, in a sense of real respect of nature is not stupid. These things are happening for a reason. Let me just stand back a bit and, and listen to what it is telling me, rather than my arrogance of, I know better, I tell you what to do, and then if I look at what is telling me that, or who is telling me that, and what is behind that, and then you come into darker fields. Where people are making money and manipulating and lying. I loved when you talked about the fever, Renee. Do you know what the image was I got? This little child sort of is in this fiery fever and emerges a phoenix, a phoenix arising from the ashes, the next stage. This little child emerges into the next stage, this gorgeous, resilient, phoenix and i'm sure that when they've been through one of those the next illness that comes they can ward off more easily because this system's stronger and so it builds whereas this way we're denuding our systems renee it is but but i, I don't want to minimize it because the you need to take good care because there are of course and that is possibly in the destiny of of somebody but there are children who die from that or children who get a terrible meningitis. And the, in a way, you, you, you would like to prevent that without preventing the occurrence of an illness itself. But when, my point earlier was that we can't pretend that jabbing children and adults prevents death because we're seeing now with COVID that it doesn't. It doesn't prevent, we've got over 60,000 injured, where, you know, how can we say, oh, that's to be expected, which is what this prime minister said. There, there, there are risks either side and you have to weigh it up intelligently and say, what has mother nature given us? And what do human beings give us? And mother nature has a purity in human beings. Well, is there money behind this? Is there profit? Already I'm starting to think, hmm, I'm going to, I'm going to question this one. So many, yes, what was it that? Is all, it is all a good questioning because we know that, that one of the alarming things in uh, an overseas research, for instance, simple people speaking up are funeral directors seeing in embalmers, seeing these enormous clots that they've never seen in the past. That is one thing. The other thing is that insurance companies in America, so you have all these big firms, they have insured all their their staff. So we talk about millions of people, and that's what insurance company make their money from. <clears throat> they have, have, have sounded the alarm bell because there apparently in 2021 has been a 40% increase in the number of, of deaths. And, and the, well, what we know is that this excessive death and 
of course, they, they, the governments will say, well, that is all COVID. Well, that is questionable because when Chris Hipkins said a few weeks ago from the podium, uh, we had today 15 COVID deaths. And then there was a, the reporter asked the question, is that from COVID or is it with COVID? And he said, I'll, I'll ask Ashley who was standing there and Ashley Bloomfield said, no, we're very inclusive. So if that person has a positive test, then it is a COVID death. So that, that is the one thing. On the other hand, if we have, as I heard. Uh, so I'll just say there for people who haven't quite taken that point, someone who had a bullet wound and died from that, but they were identified as having also COVID at the same time. That was recorded as a COVID death. That's that right. is how ludicrously dishonorable and dishonest it has become. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> that's true. There is, in medicine, it's not the only thing because you have, if, I think if a mother dies within two months or something after childbirth, it is called a maternal death and needs to be investigated, even if it is something completely different. So it's not not unique, but it is it is used in this context. And then I heard Guy Rich uh, Hatchett. He he spoke. He's a statistician, or was. The government doesn't like him, but he has. Um, he said this year there have been, I think. 2,200 excess deaths already over the normal period. And they found that in America and in other countries too. Now the death rate is actually a fairly stable statistics. And if you have 2,200 extra deaths in New Zealand, just in this year, where we say 90% of the people have been vaccinated, then you think has at least you, you need to ask a question what are these extra deaths renee we're going to leave it there today with this beautiful question hanging and the quest of everybody listening is to investigate that and then next week we'll continue with the world council of health which because it's so rich talking to you there are so many ways we can go we have to take two or three weeks to get to that world council of health meeting in bath because you are one of the most extraordinary interviewees dr renee you just offer so much and and kiwis are loving it when we talk to you loving it we need to keep up hope we really always keep hope that we can work towards a better future and a future of honesty and truth. Oh, I love talking to you. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.